Wonderful to be here. Really enjoyed the singing service. Great to be able to sing with you. Great to be able to now bring God's word to you, to those here, those joining us remotely. Uh, I just thank God for this opportunity to worship Him, to worship the King as we just sang. I'd like to begin the message this morning by reading to you from the second chapter of. Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. I'm going to start at the beginning of the chapter and read the first 13 verses. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure." I'd like to ask you to consider one question this morning. And that is the question of who or what is Lord of your life. A question of central importance to your life. Who is Lord of your life? Who has authority to tell you how to live your life? What to do? How to think? How to view the world? How to interact with those around you? Who has the right to do so and the power to lead you and to guide you? Who is Lord of your life? We have been looking at the subject when I've been here of the kingdom of God. And this passage really gets to the heart of the essence of the kingdom of God. And that is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's look at this passage for a moment, and then we'll come to uh, verse 11, which speaks about this statement, Jesus Christ is Lord. 
But Paul here begins this chapter by exhorting the hearers to have in them the mind of Jesus Christ. He's encouraging them towards unity, towards love, towards uh, mutual uh, meekness, lowliness of mind towards one another. He says, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He speaks here of unity, of oneness in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessed thing to strive for is to be one. What a desirable thing that we would be in perfect unity and perfect harmony and peace with one another. How could we achieve such a thing? What is the path that must be taken to be able to come to a place of oneness and unity in fulfillment of God's exhortation to us and the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ who prayed that we would be one as the Father and Son are one? What is the path to that unity? Well, here we are given a uh, a signpost, a, a direction, a roadmap towards unity and it is by this to have the mind of jesus christ in us and what is that well he points us to it he says in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves this is something that uh this is goes against our sinful proud human nature to look at others as better than us when you, when you interact with others, when you maybe have a disagreement with others, do you look at them as better than yourself? Do you esteem them higher than you esteem yourself? Do you, uh, as it says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others? Here's a beautiful picture that we're given. If in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of us, was to look not on our own things, but to look out for the benefit and the good of others. Then the whole church would have many brothers and sisters looking after each of our good and well-being. Rather than uh, selfishly trying to make sure that we ourselves are taken care of and that we get what we need, we would be looking each one for everyone else. Let Each man, it says, look, not on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And what example and pattern do we have for that? We just need to look at our Lord Jesus Christ, at who he is, what he has done for us. And we have there the perfect model for us to look upon. Because if we're tempted to be selfish, if we're tempted to think that we need to spend our lives making sure that we take care of ourselves first and, and don't concern ourselves with others, all we need to do is look to our Lord Jesus Christ who laid down everything for our good, laid down everything, suffered for our benefit, sacrificed for our benefit, served unselfishly, For the good of others. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The eternal word of God, the Son, who dwelt eternally 
from before the creation of time with his father in an exalted place in heaven came down to this earth, took on human flesh, took on the weaknesses and the frailties of human flesh, of, a, of an impoverished existence for the sake of his people. For the sake of our deliverance and our salvation. This is what he has done. When we consider the subject of the kingdom of God, we consider Jesus Christ exalted to the place of the highest honor and authority in the, in the creation. Exalted at the right hand of his Father in heaven. But we also see running throughout everything that we're given in the scriptures about the kingdom of God, we see this theme that before he ascended, he first came down, he descended. Before he was exalted to the place of authority, he passed through a time of suffering, of trial. We have uh, images that foreshadow this in the Bible stories. Consider the life of King David, who was exalted to a place of authority and kingship over all the tribes of Israel. But before he rose to this place of authority, he went through a time of suffering. He was persecuted. He was afflicted. They tried to put him to death. They chased him around. He hid out in caves like an exile. And yet, after he suffered, he was exalted to a place of honor and a place of authority. And in doing so, he foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of Joseph. Think of how Joseph suffered, how he was uh, beaten by his brothers, thrown into a pit, left for dead, sold into slavery, gone down into captivity captivity in Egypt, uh, falsely accused, sent into prison, suffered in prison for years. But after that, after his suffering, after he was brought low, he was exalted to the place of authority over the kingdom of Egypt. And he was Pharaoh's right-hand man, second only to Pharaoh in all the kingdom of Egypt. And from that position of authority and dominion, he brought about the deliverance, the salvation of his brethren from famine. That swept through the land and he was able to be a means through which God would deliver his people from destruction and bring them into a place where they would be fed. And in doing so, he also foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ, who first went down into the depths of suffering and death and into the grave itself, but was brought forth. And is now exalted to a place of highest authority from which he accomplishes fully the salvation and deliverance of his people. And feeds us daily with good things that sustain our lives, our flesh, and our spirits and our souls. And so we can look to him as the example. Being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here's a lesson for you. If he who had the greatest wealth, the greatest honor, the greatest position, the greatest rank, if he who had the greatest riches and treasures of all was willingly giving them up to be able to come down and suffer, Why? 
not for his own sake, but for your sake, then how much more can you be willing to humble yourself for the good of your brothers and sisters? How much uh, can you be willing to lower yourself humbly before your brothers and sisters to seek their good and to esteem them, given what Jesus Christ has done for you? So this is, this is the humility of our great Lord. The humility of the one who deserves praise and glory and honor and the highest position of all has humbled himself. What a glorious, loving Savior that we have. One who is worthy of our awe, our amazement at his greatness and his power, but also our affection and our love. Because he cares so deeply about his people that he willingly suffered for our sakes. This is the greatness of our Lord. And he did so, he did so in accordance with the eternal purpose of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Such that his heavenly, his Father, our Heavenly Father, the Father of the Son, is fully pleased with what his Son has done. And accomplished. So it says he has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, here we have this incredible essence of the of the trajectory of the kingdom of God where is it going where is it leading it is leading to this this defined end that every knee will bow everything in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is lord that is a complete and thorough and utter victory that Jesus Christ has. Now this, to clarify, this is not teaching, this is not saying that everyone will be saved. This is not teaching universal salvation. But this is teaching universal subjection to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is teaching a consummate victory over all things, that all of his enemies will be subdued under him. This is also, this passage is also implicitly, if not, uh, and really directly, but also implicitly teaching the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. To confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is to say that he is the one with all authority and all dominion and all power. And in fact, this is a a quote of sorts. This is a reference to an Old Testament prophetic scripture which spoke about how all would come to confess God. That would all come to confess God from Isaiah 45. We'll turn there in a moment. But consider that this is teaching the ultimate victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over all of his enemies. So as we live in this world, in this world as it presently is, 
I have, I have said, I have, I have asserted that we live in the time of the kingdom of God. It is a present reality in which we live. And yet, when we look around this world, we see so many things in rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't always seem to us, to our eye of flesh, that he reigns over all things because we see things in rebellion against him. Uh, I like how it's phrased in Hebrews when it says all things have been put under his feet. But it says, we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus. So if we have our eyes fixed upon him instead of all of the things going on in this world, if he is our first thought and desire and the top of our affections, then we can see the victory. The end from the beginning because it is embodied in him. We've uh, looked at how God's kingdom is manifested in the earth over time in different ways, in different means. And that this time in which we live now is the time of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. the The Messiah's reign over the earth from his throne in heaven. And how that is in fulfillment of what the prophets foretold. And how he is living and reigning. As it says, he must reign until he has made his enemies his footstool. And at the, and at the end, the end, the consummation of all things, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death itself. And even death and the reign it has over us will be swallowed up in victory. And even now. As we look forward to the future resurrection of all from the graves, even now, though, we have the first fruits of that, the guarantee of it, because he himself has risen from the dead and defeated and conquered death. And so as we live in this time, we live in a time when he is subduing all his enemies under his feet, subduing what what are his enemies? What are the enemies that it speaks of? And, and in case you're not familiar with this, what I'm making uh, reference to is 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, Psalm 110. Psalm 110, it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. This is what has happened and is happening in history. It happened in history. It speaks about it in in Mark and in the book of Acts. It says that Jesus was taken up to heaven and he sat down on the right hand of the Father. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So there is uh, something that is happening during his reign until it comes to its consummation. And that is that his enemies are being subdued under him. And then 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath made, put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifested that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. 
And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I I made reference to this briefly at the end of the last sermon, but I kind of rushed through what it's what it's saying there, which is which is speaking about the faithful reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we compared how God had, when he created man in the earth, he entrusted him with dominion as a steward over this creation. He said, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the the animals, the beasts of the field. He gave him dominion. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And man was to be God's faithful steward of the creation that he'd made. Of all the animals and creatures and the earth that God had made, he put Man, He created man in his own image. Male and female created he them in his own image. And he put them at the head of the creation. But man did not faithfully discharge the duties that God had given him. But in the coming of Jesus Christ, that faithful dominion is redeemed. And Jesus, where the first Adam was unfaithful in discharging God's duties... In the earth, the last Adam is completely and fully faithful. And he will reign faithfully and truly and justly and rightly in this earth. And when he has completed his reign, he will render up that fully complete, completed, subdued kingdom unto his father. See, he says when he put all things under him, he makes sure to... In this passage to clarify that when he says all things, he doesn't mean that the father also is put under the son because the father is the one who has given the son charge of all things and put under him. And when all of his work in his kingdom is brought to its consummation and completion and even that last enemy, death itself is destroyed because Jesus has raised the dead from their graves and conquered even death itself. And death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. And every enemy has been destroyed. Then he will render up to his father his faithfully discharged kingdom that God, it says, may be all in all. This is an incredible thing to not even be able to wrap our minds around, but consider the glory of that kingdom over which he reigns. So what what are his enemies? Well, people that oppose him, that rebel against him. How does he put them under his feet? How does he defeat and subdue his enemies? Well, sometimes he destroys them. Sometimes he makes his people willing in the day of his power. Sometimes he rides forth with a sword of the word of God going out of his mouth, piercing into hearts that were rebellious against him, touching those hearts and converting them to bring them in repentance and faith before him in willing submission to his will and his purpose. There's also fallen angels There's spiritual wickedness in high places that oppose him. I also think of his enemies as his enemies could be institutions that are raised up in the earth to uh, fight in a cause against the cause of Jesus Christ. It could be uh, worldly philosophies that oppose the truth of Jesus Christ. 
false gods, false ideas that bring people to destruction instead instead of fruitfulness and truth and peace and harmony. All of those things that you can imagine that oppose the name, the authority, and the ways of Jesus Christ are his enemies and he will have the victory over all of them. And yet, during this life in which we live, we live in a time of struggle. We live in a time in which he is riding forth and conquering. But through his people, he is accomplishing his will and his purpose in the earth. I had this in my notes from, from the end of the last message. But during the time that he is subduing all his un- enemies under his feet, we participate in that conquest. We are part of that. God has called his people to be part of his reign in this earth. To be a means by which his reign is manifested in this earth and his glory is displayed. He who called himself the light of the world has referred to his people saying, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven so that all the glory redounds to God. So we participate in that. First of all, it's by our own lives being brought into submission by his, to his kingship, to his rule and his authority. When you live your life in obedience to him, in submission to his kingship, you are participating in the kingdom of God, the nature of his kingdom. We often don't recognize the extent and the greatness of his kingdom because we want it to be like all the kingdoms of this world, but that's not how it works. His kingdom is a kingdom that is ruled by truth. He says, they that are of the truth, hear my voice. He is the truth. And when we receive truth and we obey truth, we are participating in his reign in this earth through the truth. And then by being used by him as instruments in the accomplishment of his work in the world. He, in his wisdom, in God's infinite wisdom, God has chosen to reign in this way, that Jesus Christ reigns from heaven, but his people, he has prayed that they would not be taken out of the world, but that they would be preserved from the world. When he prays for his people, he prays, Father, I pray that you don't take them out of the world. He will eventually, each one of us in our time, take us out of this world, but he has intended that we would live and dwell in this world for a time, for a season, and that his people would always be here. And through his people, he is working his will in this world as we obediently follow him and serve him and perform his will in the earth as it is performed in heaven. We are living out the kingdom of God. And for each one of us, For our personal experience of that and journey of that, it begins with us being brought into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Being brought to a place where He is the Lord of our lives. He comes and by His power of His Spirit, He touches our hearts, He changes our hearts, and He calls us to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. As Paul writes, work out your own salvation. Live out 
the grace that God has performed upon you with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God that works into you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. It is the power of God at work in your life when you are serving God. So serve Him with fear and trembling because that is a sacred thing. That is a holy thing to be serving the living God, to have His Spirit working in you, motivating you, stirring up your affections, guiding the thoughts and intents of your heart, leading you. That is a sacred and holy thing. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that is in work in you. And when we are brought into that place of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then we are participating in the incredible work of the kingdom of God in this earth. In Romans chapter 14, there's another reference to this same uh, scripture, which I said was, was uh, quoting from Isaiah. In Romans 14, verse 10... The context of the passage is about how we deal with one another and interact with one another when it comes to non-essential matters of our service to God. Um, Some of the things that at that time they were dealing with were things like um, dietary laws and restrictions. And some felt strongly that They should abide by certain regulations to what they ate or what they didn't eat. And some felt strongly that uh, they should be able to eat anything that they uh, desire and it didn't matter. Uh, And some felt strongly that there were certain holy days that they should be keeping. And some felt that they shouldn't be. And so if we're to strive for unity, uh, but we have these things at times that we cannot come to agreement on, or at least can't for a time, then how are we to deal with one another about these non-essential matters of our service to God? Well, Paul provides much guidance about these things. And and in this, he says in verse 10, uh, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set at not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I think in a way, when you consider that, uh, they were, there were conflict in the church about uh, whether or not to keep such and such a, a holy day. And they were arguing about it. They were fighting about it. They were at odds with one another about it. And Paul comes in in this passage, and in a sense, he raises the stakes for each one of them. He says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let's take a step back for a moment when you find yourselves in these types of conflicts and disagreements and consider first, before you judge another, consider first that you will give account unto God for these things. And so will they. And so will they. It's sobering. To consider that. He says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us 
shall give account of himself to God. It's a sobering thought to consider that ultimately God is the one to whom we answer. Not to one another. Uh, We may either have a desire to please men or uh, maybe not. Sometimes we have a desire not to please men. But whatever the case is, ultimately, it's not about whether we please man or don't please man. We will answer to God. We will give account to God. And He is the one that should have the authority over our lives. He does have the authority over our lives, but we should live in the reality of that authority. Not uh, ultimately to man's ideas, not ultimately, uh, which is, I think, for many of us, the bigger temptation to our own whims and desires and pleasures. You know, the main thing, I think, for most of us that in us that resists Jesus Christ being the Lord of our life is that we want to be the Lord of our own life. We, want to, we don't want somebody else telling us, do this or don't do this. We would like the ability to judge for ourselves. We would like the ability to decide for ourselves what's good for us, what's pleasurable for us, what, what we want. And we think that submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ is going to constrain us. It's going to make us less free. And, And we don't realize that the only true freedom in this life is to dwell in the truth, to know the truth, and to live the truth. That is true freedom. Jesus says, whosoever sins is a servant of sin. He says, if you hear my word and you obey the truth, then you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That's the only true freedom we can have in this world. It isn't by being free to do whatever we want in the moment. It's being free to serve God. Freedom from the guilt and the chains of sin. Free to be the servant of Jesus Christ. Paradoxical, yes, but true in every respect. This harkens back to Romans chapter 45, uh, to Isaiah chapter 45. I promise we would turn there. This is Isaiah chapter 45. So when you see it speaking about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, this is no accident, the similarity to the language that we have in Isaiah chapter 45. Let's begin in verse 17. So many great parts to these chapters in Isaiah. Uh, this, This section of Isaiah, just again and again, is exalting the glory and the power of God. Contrasting the true and living God with the false gods of this world, with the idols, the blind, deaf, idols, the idols that can't speak, that can't hear, with the God who sees the end from the beginning, with the God who hears the cries of His people, with the God who speaks a word which comes forth from His mouth and cannot be stopped. And God contrasts the idols of the world with His greatness and His power. 
And he shows how in his infinite wisdom he is working his will in the affairs of this earth. He talks about how as his people are in captivity in the kingdom of Babylon, how in the appointed time he would send another empire to come and he would anoint the head of this empire who's who's, uh, Cyrus, the empire of the Persians. And he would have him come in and be a deliverer that would, that would deliver his people from that captivity in Babylon and uh, command them to go back into their land and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And how God, even though the kings of this earth are trying to do their will and, and motivated by their own desires, yet God is doing his will in the earth and in heaven and accomplishing His purpose, and looking after the good of His people. Uh, but, But we begin in verse 17, But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation, and shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. You can think about this in a number of different ways, but God saved Israel. Many times with with many different salvations, many deliverances. For example... When they were brought into captivity in Babylon. God delivered them from that captivity and brought them back into the land. Or when they were enslaved in Egypt. God delivered them from that captivity and he brought them into the promised land of Israel. But those deliverances, those deliverances were for a time. For a season. Sometimes they were delivered and then later on after they had rebelled against God and turned aside from him. They were brought back into captivity again. But now he says, I am going to deliver you with an everlasting salvation. He says, "Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. There's so much we can get out of this. One of the things that I get out of this is the encouragement that God's work and purpose in this earth has not failed or been thwarted. It might be rebelled against. It might be fought against or rebelled against by the sinfulness of man, but God will accomplish his purpose in the earth. Man sins. Man disobeys God in the garden. But God's purpose is not overthrown. The nation of Israel rebels against their God. But God's purpose is not overthrown. He will accomplish His purpose and His will. He says, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Seek ye first the kingdom of of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. The first verse we we looked at when we began this series of messages on the kingdom of God, seek ye first the kingdom of God. God here encourages them and exhorts them saying, I did not tell you to seek me in vain, to seek me for nothing. Seeking God is not something that no good will come from. It's not useless. It's not pointless. It's worthwhile. More worthwhile than anything 
in this earth, all the treasures of this earth are not worthy to be compared with the value of seeking the King of kings and Lord of lords. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them that take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Here God declares his sovereign purpose in the earth. That he would be a savior, a deliverer for his people. People that would come from every nation, tribe, and tongue in all the world. That God would be a savior and a deliverer and there is no other. There is no God, other God that can save. There is no other deliverer. There is no other that is worthy of the glory. And there is no other with the power. To save his people from all the ends of the earth. And so he calls out to the the ends of the earth and he says, look unto me and be ye saved. He says, I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength, even to him Shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified, and shall glory. Here he declares his success in saving his people. He says he will accomplish the salvation of his people. His enemies will be ashamed. All they that oppose him will be brought to shame. But those that look unto him... From all the ends of the earth will be saved with an everlasting salvation, with a deliverance that cannot be taken away from them. And these very words that he says that speak about God's salvation of his people are the very same language that in the New Testament is applied to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is to him that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And they shall confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That he has authority. And if this is to which all things are going, that God himself has spoken it and it cannot be taken back and it cannot be thwarted and opposed. If this is the end result of God's work in this world, then how much more should we live now every day in the reality of the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord? So who is Lord of your life? Who has authority over your life? Are you going to leave it to someone else? Are you going to try to take it upon yourself because you think you know better? Or will you live your life in submission 
to the one who has all power and all authority. The one who has all wisdom because by him were all things created. The one to whom all the treasures and wealth of all things are his inheritance. The Lord Jesus Christ. So who is Lord of your life? May the Lord Jesus Christ be at the forefront of your affections and your desire. And may we live our lives in submission to him for he is worthy.